We've been in the book of Exodus. We'll break next week for Advent and Christmas. And a reminder, uh, the Tuesday Bible study on Exodus does not meet this coming Tuesday, but rather the following Tuesday. We come now in chapter 10 to uh, the plague of locusts. And before that plague is announced, uh, this is what the Lord says. The Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his officials, so that I may perform signs of my own among them, so that you may tell your children and your grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and performed my signs among them, so that you may know that I am the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. They call it a smartphone, and, and so it is. But it's not as smart as it thinks it is. It thinks it knows me pretty well. And it does, but it doesn't know me that well. A couple of weeks ago, I was texting someone about the importance of developing people as disciples. And so as I was texting, it thought it would help me out and finish the word for me. And I communicated to that person the importance of deviling people as disciples. Not exactly what I had in mind. I have a smart tablet. It's pretty smart. It learns to read me. It knows where I've been and anticipates where I might go next. So about a week and a half ago, I was on my smart tablet looking at the possibility of getting tickets to the University of Texas, University of North Carolina, a basketball game in December. And, and I went to a couple of different sites looking at different tickets. And so my tablet uh, reasoned that I must therefore be a North Carolina fan and began to point me to all these various websites where I might better support uh, the Tar Heels and participate with other fans just like me. My wife and I went to Duke. I don't think that's going to happen. It knows me, but it doesn't know me that well. Amazon.com knows me pretty well. And if from my tablet or from my phone I go to Amazon.com, they'll have a list of some recent books about uh, Jesus or, or books on the Jewish background of Jesus that I might be interested in. But when I go to my home computer... And I, it suggests books that my wife's book club has read over the past year. And I don't think they're particularly interested in reading N.T. Wright in the near future. We have difference between Pam and me, but the computer don't, doesn't know that. It's just not that smart. You might know me. You might know when I was born, where I was born. You might know what I do for a living. You might even know my shopping preferences. But that's not really knowing me. Not the same way my wife knows me or my family knows me or the pastors with whom I work closely know me. There's a knowing and then there's a really knowing. And when we come to the scriptures this morning and we look at the phrase that shows up so often uh, during the Exodus, especially on uh, through the plagues, where God says that a certain group will know that I am God. It's important to realize that there's knowing and there's really knowing. When Westerners like me talk about knowing, we talk about head stuff. We talk about intellectual stuff. So I know you exist. I know you can do these things. I know that this is your date of birth or I know that this is where you live. And it tends to deal in the intellect, 
tends to deal sometimes in abstractions or, or theoretical uh, suppositions or propositions. But biblically, when you get to the Hebraic sense of knowing, it tends to be much more personal, much more intimate, much more relational, much more experientially, experiential. It's the difference between knowing and really knowing. God doesn't want to be known in the normal sense that we use that word. God wants to be really known. And really known is first not on an intellectual level, not on a head level, but a heart level. And it's not on some abstract discussion level, but on an experiential level. So, for example... You get that most interesting verse in Genesis after uh, Abraham has taken his son, his one and only son, up to Mount Moriah and is ready to actually sacrifice him as God has instructed. God stops Abraham and says, Abraham, Abraham, now I know that you will not withhold your son, your one and only son, from me. When I used to read that, I think, duh, God, you know everything. Everything is seen and known by you. But when you look at this other level of knowing, what God may be saying to Abraham is, now I've experienced it for myself. Now I've actually experienced the depth of your commitment and your love for me. That's knowing. It's at a completely different level. It's a level that involves a, a, a lot of intimacy between two parties. And, and for the PG version this morning, let me just turn you parents back to Genesis When Adam and Eve have children, what does the Bible say before they have children? The Bible says Adam knew Eve. That's an intimate knowledge. That's a relational knowledge. That's how you really come to know. And so when God wants to be known, it's not for the Egyptians just go, Oh yeah, I I realize you exist. But there's something else deeper that's going on. how How does truth then, or knowledge get acquired in this way. And one of the things it tells us is it will never be known just by discussion or abstraction uh, or just theorizing. God will only be known in relationship. It's in relationship that we come to know God most deeply. That's how Jesus can make this amazing assertion in John fourteen six that truth is actually a person. Truth is actually a person. Remember what Jesus told people? He said, I am the way and the truth. That's because truth is known relationally. That's when you know Jesus, you know truth. And Jesus is not going to just be apprehended by taking a book and reading about Jesus or studying about Jesus. Jesus will be known as we actually interact with him and with others who also are in relationship with him. Have a study group of people in relationship already with Jesus, and you're going to get somewhere. Just throw a group together, throw a book about Jesus on the table for them, and they're not likely to come to know because knowledge is so relational and knowledge is so personal. Uh, They used to say when I was younger, oh, to know me is to love me. But that's not really what we're saying this morning. We're saying to love me is to know me. Those of us who love God and come to love God will actually come to know God better. And then we will come to know those of us who desire to know God will in turn even love God more. 
God, it is interesting, but it seems to me that what God is saying in Exodus is that both the goal and the method are the same. The goal is to know God, which is to have a personal relationship with God. And the method is to have a personal relationship with God. That's how the knowledge is acquired. Truth is a person. We can come to know God. And when we know God, then the key is open to know all sorts of other things. But the key is, first of all, in relationship, not in the abstract. I'm reminded of what Walter Brueggemann once said about Adam and Eve. He said the brilliance of the snake was the snake gets Adam and Eve when God's out of the picture to have a little theological debate about God. Why is it God won't let you touch that fruit? Uh, You're not going to die. God just doesn't want you to be like God. And as Brueggemann points out, the problem is they talk about God and not with God. All Adam and Eve have to do is just wait a few hours and God will come walking through the garden and then they can ask. And then they can know, not here, but they can know here, the kind of knowing that leads to obedience, to love, and actually to more knowing. Well, if God desires to be intimate with people and to be known through intimacy and through relationship, maybe another question is, well, who does God want to know God? And Amy began to spell this out for the children It's clear that God wants Moses and Aaron and the Israelites to know God and to have a relationship with God. Uh, But also, as she pointed out the children, that God actually wants the children and grandchildren to know and have that relationship with God. There are a number of scholars who make the point that probably the audience, the main audience for the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the main audience is children. Look at how often the phrase shows up. So that you and your children, this will happen for you and your children. The land will be given to you and your children. And then you get to the Passover and you're told, have the youngest person at the table ask, why is this night different from any other night? The children were the key. And how do our children and grandchildren come to that relationship with God? They come when those of us who have that relationship begin to tell them about it so they can begin to get involved and experienced in that relationship. There was a great rabbi sometime after the time of Jesus, but he said this when thinking about children and grandchildren. He said, it is we parents and grandparents who give our children wings so that they may soar to the heights with God. How else will they get in that relationship with God, this rabbi argued, Rabbi Akiba, unless parents and grandparents give them the wings by which they may get there. But the goal is that children would know. It's a pretty radical notion because in much of the ancient world, children are are not particularly valued or respected. Many ancient societies practice uh, infant exposure, and that is they'll just take babies that they don't want and leave them there out uh, uh, in, in public to die. Some may get adopted and turned into slaves, and the other die. So how radical it was when Jesus came and said, let the children come to me. And he blessed them and put them on his knee. But it wasn't radical if you knew the father. Because the father had always said that the children were the main target. That the children would come to know. That the children would come to rise on those wings and have a relationship with the father. But it gets even more interesting to me than that. When I started looking at the the stories of the plagues and found out that the 12 times I could find where God would say, so that you know, fill in the blank, will come to know that I am God. 
that 75% of the time, what you're filling in the blank there is Egypt or Pharaoh. You know, and the way I used to read that is God would say, I'm going to kick Pharaoh's butt so he'll know I'm God and he's not. I'm going to push him around. I'm going to show that I'm big and I'm bad. And I'm going, yay, God, that's right. Tell him you're bigger. Tell him you're badder. Make them know that. But what if this isn't a head trip for Pharaoh and the Egyptians? What if this is an invitation for them to experience God and also come to relationship with God? Is it too far-fetched to believe that God wanted a relationship with the Egyptians as well? The rabbis also often discussed what the Bible uh, talks about uh, in the Old Testament, which is that Israel is God's firstborn son, but not God's only son in that regard, in that metaphor. There are other sons, and Pharaoh in Egypt, they talk about, the rabbis talk about, as God's rebellious son. In some ways, Egypt's the prodigal, and God is hoping and waiting that that child will come home. You don't believe me? Look it up in the Bible for yourself. Isaiah, the 19th chapter, verse 23, this is what God says. Egypt, my people. Israel, my inheritance. You probably know how inheritance laws work. The oldest son, firstborn, gets two-thirds, typically. But there's something left for the other sons. And God wants a relationship with them as well. Uh, One of my heroes who uh, passed away some years ago, the late uh, uh, rabbi, of course he's late, uh, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, uh, after World War II and the Holocaust angered, fellow Jews, when he would remind them of what Isaiah said. And he would go on and add, God is not only our God, God is the God of our enemies. And one day we will all worship him together. They just want to pull their hair out. What do you mean? You can't love those people. You can't? If our God only loves some and doesn't love others... What's the difference between our God and Pharaoh? If our God only wants to be known just to prove that God is really bad and really big, what's the difference between God and Pharaoh? But if our God wants to be known personally, and if our God wants all people to have opportunity to love him and come to know themselves as sons and daughters of his, then we've got something. And I think Jesus knew this. Miloslav Volf is a theologian at Yale, but this is a guy that knows a lot about different factions because uh, he came from Bosnia-Herzegovina. He knows what that looks like when you say some people are good and everybody else is bad and some are loved and others are not. And Volf makes this observation. He says, in Jesus' day, the more religious people made it a virtue not to hang out with irreligious, unclean people. And the more you just stuck to others who were cleaned and chosen, the better you were than those who didn't. And then Jesus came and just turned that on its head. Who did Jesus hang out with? The Bible tells us tax collectors and sinners. The very ones who aren't supposed to be in this family are the ones that Jesus came to hang out with. If I were to summarize what I've learned about the In the plague so far, what I've learned about God, I would just give it to you in this one sentence. We have a God who, when it comes to love, 
is both and, not either or. God doesn't say, I love some and don't love others. God wants all of the children to come home. And you might, like me, think, well, God has a fine way of showing it, sending them gnats, frogs, hemorrhoids, darkness, pestilence. What is that for people who love? That's a great question. But I'd want you to know this. Would you want your children to think it's okay to have slaves? Would you want your children okay? Would you, are you okay with them thinking they can spit in the face of morals, of compassion, that they should engage in oppression? Would you want that for your children? God must come and show them what it is to be children of the Heavenly Father. The rabbis had a story to illustrate this about how sometimes God, in God's mercy, also has to judge. And God's mercy and judgment sometimes have to go next to each other. They told a story about a king who had an exquisite, precious goblet made. And so they presented the, the king with this precious, exquisite, wonderful goblet. And the king held it and thought about it and said, Now if I pour only real hot water in there, it may crack. But if I pour only real cold water in there by itself, it may crack. So the king thought about it for a moment. And the king decided to mix the hot and the cold together for the preservation of his most precious goblet. And so it is, reasoned these religious teachers, that God uses both mercy and judgment to preserve and encourage and correct all of us, his very valued children. One day, Isaiah says, the Egyptians will be my people and Israel will be my inheritance. One day, the scriptures look for a time when all the children will come to know, I mean, really know, their father.